You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Would you all please stand for the gospel reading? We all know this story. There's a song associated with it. Zacchaeus was a... It is so wrong. When, when I learned that song, the hand motions literally was like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. It's so wrong. And we're going to find out how the people in the story treated him worse than we treat him with that song. But when we go to heaven, can we all just apologize to Zacchaeus? Be like, Zacchaeus, we're really sorry. <laughs> Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Everybody say, passing through. through. His plan was not to stop. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He was a wee little man. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. For Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I'm changing my plans today, for I must stay at your house. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. Church people, if I ever, ever heard a sentence that describes it, he's sitting with sinners. Oh, my God. And Zacchaeus stood which was quite vulnerable for him. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And I want you to notice a tense change. And Jesus said to him, him being Today, salvation has come to this house. And then he says, since he, not since you, since he is also a son of Abraham. So Jesus, quite like the word given today, talks to individuals and the corporate at the exact same time. Everything Jesus does is always good for everybody who's around to see it. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. We've been preaching uh, through a series called The Essentials, and I want to say I'm choosing this to be the final series that I preach before I get ordained because I want everyone to know that I don't take lightly the responsibility as I step deeper into ordination to want to make sure that everybody knows my job at that point is not to take us into something new and and away from what we grew up with, but to establish every foundation that's been good and right since we were in Sunday school. To establish the force of foundation so that we can move on to deeper things, but never lose the basics. Because when we lose the basics, when we can no longer play the scales, when we when we don't know how to stretch, when we when we don't know how to drink enough water, when we lose the basics, you can't build anymore. You just end up surviving. 
So it is, it's, it's my heart, it's my passion to make sure that we are never forgetting what it means to have a devotional life with the Lord. A devotional life is a life devoted to God in personal practice and public recognition of Christ in others. We said it two weeks ago, our devotional life is our personal practice to God. Reading our Bible, reading a devotional, reading prayers, going for a walk, spending time. We, we call it quiet time. It's what every pastor gets to say when we're late to something. I'm sorry the Lord was really talking this morning and my quiet time ran over. It's important, but our devotion to God is not just our personal life. It's also our ability to recognize Christ in the other and to enjoy Jesus in the other. Our life as Christians are deeply personal, but they're never private. They're personal, but it's not private. And so devotional life is life personally devoted to God in that one-on-one -on -one solitude and also being devoted to the Christ in another person. We're going to talk about that today. The crowds did not see Jesus rightly because they didn't see Zacchaeus rightly. And like we said, devotional life begins by gathering on Sundays. Like we said last week, I think this is just so cool, that our homes become like the empty tomb on Sunday. People will go to find us in our homes, and all of your homes are empty right now. And the angel would be there saying, why do you come to seek them here? They're not here, but they've gone to be where Jesus told them to gather. Every Sunday morning when we leave our homes, we, we leave the empty tomb and we go gather where Jesus told us to gather. And we reenact the resurrection all the time. That's where our devotional life starts. Because when you're here, it's exactly personal and corporate at the same time. How many got a word for their life already today? And how many know the church has gotten a word for its life as one whole so far? It's personal and public here at the same time. They both start here. And they flow out the door. The tree of life is in the midst of the city, but the water that waters it flows from the sanctuary out into the world. Read the book of Revelation. It is terrifying, and you'll read it wrong, and it's perfectly fine, but it's amazing every time. And then we talked about generosity. Why? Because you can't be personally devoted to God, and you can't be personally devoted to your neighbor and not be generous. Generosity is the offering of our time, talent, and treasure, the three T's. This is my time given for you. This is my talent given for you. This is my treasure given for you in personal devotion and in public service. This is why at Salem Tabernacle, we don't pass a plate because we don't collect money. We receive it. We don't collect it. We receive it. Because what we all do, myself included, is we come to an altar because the releasing of our finances, the releasing of our money to God in the form of a tithe, which is what Jesus himself commanded us to do, it's an act of worship. It's not a transaction. And so you bend your knee with your family. And they didn't have online giving back then, but we do now. And so even if that's what you do, we still want you to come here and bend your knee with your family. Because Jesus whittles down every idol in this one phrase. You cannot serve God and money because you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
if you cannot part with your money, you will despise God. Don't take it up with me at the door. Ask Jesus why he said it. So it's an act of worship with your family. That's why it's important. And if you're a guest, it is not your responsibility to send money into this house. And that's why we don't pass a plate. If you call this place home, we want you to want to. I like that too. And you know why I like that too? Because ever since Pastor Phil Arstead started doing that, we've gone through every difficult financial season you could ever imagine, and God has kept this place going, and we've never passed a plate. That's a testimony. There are things that a new pastor will do differently, but there are pillar things that my job is not to remove a pillar. It's to make sure it still has what it needs to stand. But when you are personally devoted to God and neighbor, you will be generous. And when those things are put together, it is witnessing. Witnessing the life that happens in devotion and having a generous heart toward God corporately. When you devote yourself to God and when you're generous with your stuff, you become, your walk with God becomes PDA. Somebody shout out what PDA means. How annoying is PDA? <laughs> Especially when the couple thinks that they have a great relationship. It's disgusting. I love you. I love you more. I love you more. Well, you're both greedy. Stop trying to win. Just say I love you and move on. If you're trying to outdo each other with love, it's lust now. You're not loving each other very well. Stop. Let the other person win if it's love. I love you. I love you more. You do. I let you win because I love you. Okay, I'm getting in my car. I'm getting there. I hope it rolls down the hill. Stop doing that. Stop it. However, there is good public display of affection. I watched Stuart Walker do something that blew my mind. And I think for one of the first times, I actually opened a car door for Jacqueline when we were in Ohio, and she thought something was wrong. <laughs> she thought I forgot something in the passenger side. It was pouring on Sunday. How beautiful was that on Sunday? It was pouring. And Stuart pulls the car right up to the front, comes up the stairs with an umbrella, locks arms with his bride, and takes her to the car, opens the door, and makes sure she doesn't get soaking wet. Puts the umbrella in his car, and then he gets wet getting in the car. And I said, Stuart, that's great. And my man just put his fist up like, I got that one. <laughs> that's good PDA. That's good PDA. Mm, that's not good PDA. You're my pookie. Don't tell me your nicknames out loud. Just no one needs to hear all that. And if you ever hear somebody on the phone going, oh, no, I love you more. Okay, all right, all right. He just got hung up on, and he doesn't want anybody to know. So he's having a fake conversation to act like he didn't just get hung up on. How do I know? When you got a collar on at the diner, you can't act like your spouse just hung up on you. So you got to, I love you too, Jacqueline. Be blessed in the Lord. All right. I'll be home in a little bit. All right. Okay. Bye. Yo. That's the only way to keep it. Everybody knows me. I've been here for 25 years before I started doing this. 
Like I've said it before, all I can do is be like Eminem at the end of 8 Mile. I'll tell you all my garbage so there's nothing you can say about me. And I'm here not because I deserve it, because Jesus is that awesome. (laughs) Witnessing is not what Jesus does with Zacchaeus. When Jesus witnesses to Zacchaeus, that is something only Jesus can do. We can't witness to people the way that God witnesses to people. So the question is in this story, I've heard it taught my whole life for witnessing. We need to be like Jesus and find Zacchaeus and witness to him. That is not ever going to happen in our life because we can never witness like Jesus witnessed. We witness like, not like Jesus to Zacchaeus, but we witness like Zacchaeus witnessed to the crowds. Our witness happens when the life of God, who is Jesus, happens to our life in public. When God is happening to you and you have neighbor and other in your life and God happens to you, the happening of God to your life is your witness to the other. So we don't witness like Jesus witnessed. We witnessed We witnessed like Zacchaeus witnessed. Jesus, God, happened to Zacchaeus, changed him in front of everybody. And Zacchaeus proclaimed the change that happened to him in front of everybody. Jesus witnesses to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus witnesses to the crowd. So let's talk about the crowd first. Zacchaeus was a, yeah, yeah. And he knew Jesus was coming that way. He had a limitation. And he couldn't get to the front of the crowd. Because no one who was following Jesus in that crowd was following Jesus the way that Jesus wanted them to follow him. Because if they were, Zacchaeus would have never had to climb a tree. When those around us that have limitation can't get to Jesus because we're crowding around Jesus, we are going with Jesus, but we're not following him. We're in the vicinity of Jesus, but we're not followers. If the least of these can't get through to Jesus, and they're being blocked because we're crowding around Jesus, we're not loving him. We're lusting after his blessings. And he would say, wicked and adulterous generation. You want me for what I give. You don't want me for me. How do you know? Because if you wanted me for me, you would let the least of these come to me. Another story in Luke's gospel. Tragic story in Luke's gospel. Luke 5, 17 to 20. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, religious folk, church people, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Look at this. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and tunneled through the roof. Who was in the house? Who was crowded around Jesus? Pharisees and and, and keepers of the law, church people. So why was the door blocked? Was the door was blocked by church people. And a paralyzed man on a mat couldn't get to Jesus because church people are blocking the way. 
Zacchaeus can't get to Jesus because he's short and everyone else is taller than him and no one is giving him away to Jesus so he has to climb a tree and other people have to tunnel through a roof. Here's what we know about that. God's goodness will always happen to the least of these. We can never stop it from happening but we can determine how God has to make it happen. The hole in the roof is an indictment against the Pharisees. Zacchaeus in a tree is an indictment against the Pharisees. The crowd didn't let somebody less privileged than them through. So what does Jesus do? He finds the person anyway, and he goes to his house. Zacchaeus gets blessed by Jesus, and everyone gets mad at Jesus for blessing him, and they say he's a sinner. And Jesus would say, you're absolutely right. I'm blessing him. That's how I witness to you. I'm showing you that you can be right about somebody's wrongness, and that still doesn't stop me from blessing them. So the more you tell them that they're wrong, the more I'm going to bless them to shut your judgment up. So watch this. How many of you are really blessed? It's because you're a sinner. And it's because there's people who don't think we should be blessed because they know us. And Jesus will keep blessing people who don't deserve to be blessed as long as there's people who are criticizing Jesus for blessing those people. That's how Jesus does things. The goodness of God will always happen to people that he wants it to happen to. We just determine if Jesus needs to fix his roof after or not. I don't want to be responsible for a hole in the roof. I want the least of these to be able to come through the front door. The crowds witnessed whether they liked it or not. And they witnessed by saying, we've been good. He should have come to our house. I've been good. She should not have gotten that promotion. I've been good. He doesn't deserve to be married. I've been good. He doesn't deserve to be driving a new car. I've been good. They shouldn't have been able to afford a new house. As long as critiquing and cynicism and grumbling and getting all in the minutia of how everything is run from homes to jobs to churches to bosses to all kinds. If we're the people who just feed and become alive off of criticizing every good thing that happens to somebody else and finding a reason why it shouldn't have. We will always be witnessing. We will be telling the world, this is the truth of Jesus. He's the kind of person who doesn't even realize he's been with a sinner. He's been duped. He's been manipulated. Or he's just not that moral. We will witness to that with our grumbling, with our complaining, with all this stuff. So here's my question to you. If your words were a door, do your words, are your words a closed door or an open door? Do your words end conversations or start them? One area where we can all look to to see and gauge our spiritual maturity is in the area of complaining. This is so simple. Don't need to be ordained to be a priest to say this. Just need to live a little while in the world and know Jesus. If someone, if Eric Davis, who's a phenomenal accountant, did with our words what he does with the money, would we be in the black or would we be in the red with our words? Would our words be so negative that we're in debt? Or would they all have been great investments? You don't have to answer me, I'm just... 
asking. So how do they get witnessed to? How do the crowds get witnessed to? How do we get witnessed to? Let's never forget that if we make witnessing just about salvation, we don't know what witnessing even is. We don't witness to Jesus to get them saved. We don't witness to other people. We, we actually don't witness to other people. You witness to Jesus in front of other people. Ever watched a court case on TV for like 20 weeks? Am I the only one? No? Neither do I. I'm just kidding. When you watch somebody take the stand, they're not witnessing to the jury. They're witnessing to what they saw to the jury. We don't witness to other people. We always witness to Jesus in front of other people. I'm minutia, a little bit of a semantic, but I get paid to speak, so semantics are important to me. Here's the thing. Zacchaeus could be mad for three reasons. He could be mad at the crowds for not letting him through, and rightfully so. He could be mad at himself for being the kind of person who makes everybody mad by defrauding them, and he could regret the sins he's made in life. And he could be mad at the God who's about to pass that way for making him this way. He could hide behind his own sin. He could hide behind his God-given limitations. He could hide behind the sins of other people happening to him. And what does he do? He's a victim. He's being pushed aside. It's his fault. It's God's fault. It's other people's fault. And he says, I'm not letting my limitations stop me. I'm going to find some creativity because I need to see Jesus. So he finds a tree to climb it. It's not enough. If you stop once you realize you're the victim and you don't think that God can grace you as a victim to still find a creative way to have responsibility, you don't know Jesus yet. So let me say this to you. If you're here and your life has been stunted by somebody else's sin, God will give you a sycamore tree. You still will be able to see him. You got to be willing to climb it. You have to be willing to climb it. But I promise you, it will be there for you. It will be there for you. Someone else's wrong does not absolve us of responsibility. Jesus was passing through. And Jesus had the margin in his life to have a plan and then say, I'm changing my plan, Zacchaeus. Jesus, on his way to heal Jarius' daughter, who is dying or dead at this point, and a woman stops him and touches his clothing, and Jesus says, hold on, we need to do a teaching for a minute. Jesus, just, if, if you're saying she's healed, you don't need to stop. As if God is useful and functional. God is not useful, nor is he functional. He's sovereign. He doesn't want to just heal and move on. He wants to celebrate the healing. He wants to stop and have communion with you. Jesus doesn't say, boom, healed somebody. Good work today. Boom, killing this to-do list today. Boom, I'm healing everybody. Jesus is like, oh, somebody just touched me. Well, this girl is dying. Mm. No, she's not. You just go ahead and tell everybody she's dying. It'll be much cooler when I get there. Don't worry about it. And he stops and he talks to her. Zacchaeus is a busy man. Jesus shows his generosity towards Zacchaeus. I'm stopping my whole plan today for you. And Zacchaeus says, you know what? I'll stop all my plans today for you too. And he joyfully received him into his home. 
This man is very sinful. The way the story is told is they, they want you to know Zacchaeus is terribly sinful. Zacchaeus didn't do what all of us would have done. Be like, oh my God, Jesus is coming to the house. Shove everything in the closet right now and shut some doors. There's certain rooms we don't want him to walk in right now and push everything into the closet. Like, Jesus is coming. Oh my God. Take out the fine china. Jesus is coming. Oh my God. We got to dust. We have to do everything we should have been doing all along that we never do. And now that people are coming over, now we're going to try and run and do it because we've been lazy the whole time anyway. And now Sony Important's coming over. He's like, yeah, I'll come down. You're going to walk into a mess. My life is in shambles. Everything they're saying about me is right. I'll joyfully have you over my house because I need to have you over my house. And I need you to sit in the mess. And I need you to see all of my junk. And I need you to go through every closet and every drawer and all of my accounting books. Is there a third story in a row where Jesus encounters a tax collector? And let me just make one passing statement. The chief tax collector in our country is always the president of the United States. Whoever he or she is or ends up being, do we talk about the president the way the Pharisees talked about tax collectors or the way Jesus does? Are we on? Oh, thank you, Jesus. That was like the, I was just trying to drop the mic. When you talk about the president, you're talking about a tax collector, the chief tax collector. You talk about him like the Pharisees or you talk about him like Jesus talks about. Every tax collector he meets, he talks about and stops heaven and earth to spend time with that person. And he holds them long enough until they have an encounter with God. Do our words hold our leaders long enough until the people hearing them have an encounter with God? Jesus shows generosity. Zacchaeus shows generosity. Jesus sits and enjoys Zacchaeus. Is there even a sentence recorded where Jesus tells Zacchaeus what he's doing wrong in this story? No. No sentences. He sat with him, and then Zacchaeus stands up and says, here's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I'm going to change my life. Jesus never said anything. Just because there is something right to say about somebody in your life doesn't mean you're supposed to say it. And even possibly, if you can hold that thing in your stomach long enough, they may come to the conclusion just by the mercy and love that you're showing. How many know the story of Jonah? How many know the whale? One of my very good friends, Dr. Chris Green, who is going to preach the Sunday morning sermon when I get ordained. He's going to preach the Sunday morning service, and whenever he preaches, I'm like a 16-year-old girl at a Justin Timberlake concert. I'm like, ah, Chris is coming. So excited. Chris said, every pastor in every church needs to realize they're called to be the whale. Can we swallow somebody who's wrong and hold them in our stomach long enough in the depths of their sin until they have an encounter with God and then bring them back out to the place where they were supposed to be? I hear him say stuff like that, and I'm like, there is no reason for me to ever preach. As a matter of fact, he's probably ghostwritten every one of our sermons anyway. I preached to you that one time. I've just been plagiarizing. And in the church, when you plagiarize, it's a sermon. So it's not, 
have a stomach that is strong enough to hold somebody who's wrong long enough in your life and not preach at them, but hold them long enough for them to have an encounter like Jonah had and then bring them back up to the place where they're supposed to be. Salem, our stomach needs to be stronger. We need to have a stomach. We need to just drink spiritual Pepto-Bismol or something and eat Tums and have a stomach that's strong enough to hold people until they have an encounter. Jesus just sits in the tension of the truthful gossip of some. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's not gossip. Just because it's true does not mean it's not gossip. It's actually worse gossip if it's true. Because if God graced you with the prophetic reality to know somebody else's sin, he didn't grace you with that very sensitive knowledge to spill it to other people who can't handle it. I'm going to keep dropping the microphone on the floor until it officially breaks. Zacchaeus starts off devoted to God. Jesus, come over my house. In the presence of Christ... He becomes devoted to others and says, I've defrauded people. I shouldn't have. And so what does he do? He becomes generous and he says, I'm going to pay back everything that I have stolen from people. That is how we witness. That is how we witness. We witness by not hiding the changes that God is making in our lives. We don't witness with clever schemes of, if you died today, where would you go? I'd have a funeral. That's not how we witness. When we witness like that, we use fear to witness. We witness by saying, I'll start. I don't deserve to be doing this. And if anyone has a good reason why I shouldn't be, you are 100% right. But the grace of God clothed me to be able to do it. Why did he do that? Because I stand here as an example. A 2,000 year example. I stand here as all of the church to tell you that you should not be ashamed of any level that God wants to bring you because you don't deserve it, and his grace is activated when you don't. We're just the church in Acts chapter 375 now. It's just the continuation of God's grace moving through people over the centuries to stand up to congregations and say, I don't deserve to be doing this, and you don't deserve to be doing the next thing God has for you, but his grace gives us what Jesus deserves. And when you move and when you minister in that grace, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You can't hide. I have people around me who think when, whenever there's an altar call for some kind of repentance that they shouldn't come to the altar because you know they have responsibility in the church and other people shouldn't see that. Man, let me tell this to all of you. Everybody in the room, deacons, elders, trustees, congregants, friends, family, people who just came here for the first time, people who are here for the last time. Let me just say this to everybody. The minute you recognize sin in your life and you bring it to God in an act of repentance, you are leading in that moment better than you've ever led anything else in your entire life. Because that is what we can always do. We can always do that. 
It is the one thing we can always do is bring our sin to the Lord and receive forgiveness and receive his consolations and receive his blessed assurance and then offer that to people. Offer it to people. I know we're, we're, it's at 11.30, but you gotta, we're, we're, I just want to quote the book of Revelation just for fun. I, John, your brother, this is a pastor talking. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I'm your partner. I'm your partner in your tribulation and mine, in the kingdom of God, in your life and mine, and in the amount of patience we all need to show every day that Jesus doesn't come back. Can I get a witness for somebody who needs more patience and is maybe afraid to ask for it because we've heard that dumb cliche that if you ask for it, God's going to give you. We all have a reason to have patience. I'm preaching to you right now. You got a reason to have patience. Your partner. Who are you partnering with in tribulation? Who are you partnering with in the kingdom? Who are you partnering with in in patience? All of these that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches. Zacchaeus is in his exile. His exile is a sycamore tree. The sycamore tree represents everything that Zacchaeus can't do. And here's John in Revelation saying, I'm on the island of Patmos. I know that sounds cute, but I'm here in prison. I'm in exile. And in exile, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So whether it's Moses in exile and a burning bush shows up, whether it's Jacob in exile and a ladder shows up. Whether it's Gideon threshing wheat by himself hiding and an angel of the Lord shows up. Whether it's Abraham and Sarah barren and cast aside by everybody and the Trinity shows up. Whether it's Mary by herself and Gabriel shows up. Whether it's Peter on the third day sitting in the exile of his denials or Thomas on the eighth day sitting in the exile of his doubts, Jesus shows up. There is no place in your life that you have ever been exiled to that the Spirit of God is not on its way there and has been waiting for you the entire time. The entire time. And in your exile... Is where your ministry to the world starts. It doesn't start when you get your appointment. My ministry did not skip a beat before or after I've become a pastor. My job, like yours, is to proclaim the gospel in the providence and in the location that God's given me to do it. Don't ever say, ministry will begin when I get out of this. I can be in the spirit on the Lord's day, in a storm, in the wilderness on the threshing floor, Samson with his eyes gouged out, pressed between two pillars and begins to pray and God gives him supernatural strength one more time. Wherever you are, 
God has already been there, is there, and is on his way at the exact same time. All to strengthen you in your exile. Because when you minister out of your exile, no one can ever discredit you. No one can ever tell you you're wrong when you say, I used to do X, Y, and Z, and I wasn't walking with the Lord, and it's only the prayers of parents and a church and a whole bunch of people over the last 25 years of my life that enable me to do this. I'm not crediting myself. I'm crediting the God who you can't prove didn't help me. That's witnessing. Not clever arguments about theodicy and, and theology and soteriology and all this kind of stuff. It's about saying, I don't know. Stop asking me questions. This one thing I know. I was blind, and now I see you go figure out how it happened. Not me. You go figure out how it happened. <laughs> Revelation 12. Let me close here. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Satan has been destroyed. And here's how. Eloquent preaching, no. Moral living, no. Getting it right, no. Excellent parenting, no. Being employee of the month five times in a row, no. The blood of the lamb, why? What is the blood of the lamb other than the thing that needed to be given for my sin? And then the word of my testimony which is nothing other than the story of the blood of the lamb touching my life. There is no other witnessing story than for you to not be ashamed of your sin. You destroy evil through the blood of the lamb, which is the forgiveness of your sins, and then the telling of that story, which is the story of your sin and how it's been forgiven. That is how we win the world. Not by trying to have more money than them, not by wearing nicer clothes than them, but by living in all of the various circumstances that they all live in and living in it with hope. How do I have hope? Because I was sinful and God is healing my sin. Some of you, I know this because I've been praying about it. I had 12 hours in the car this weekend. And some of you still walk in destroyed self-esteem. Some of you still walk fearful that a mistake or a consequence happening in your life is the result of your lack of faithfulness for some reason, which means you're also walking in the reality that says, because there's good things in my life, it's the result of my faithfulness. My sin is not good enough to remove blessings from my life, and my righteousness is not good enough to get blessings into my life. They both happen because Jesus is in my life. And here's the only blessing that matters. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That is the only thing that constitutes blessing. The Holy Spirit being poured into our hearts. The love of God being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. All the stuff of our life, the money, all that kind of stuff, all that is is locations where the love of God gets to be played out. 
It's not the means to it. It's not the result of it. It's the place where I get to play out the love of God that's been poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit. And there's not one person in this room that doesn't have that. You are all walking with the supreme blessing to be royal priests to a world that desperately needs to be priested, to be brought before God, to have God brought before them. But if we are afraid to admit our wrong, if we walk fearful that people would find out our parenting mistakes, our greediness, our idolatry, our proud behavior, if we're afraid to not look competent, if we're answering people before they're done asking a question because we think the faster we answer, the more competent we look, we're never going to show the light of Christ. His light shines in darkness. So I open the door to mine. Say, look how bright he is. That's how we win. The blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Our testimony is not how much stuff we have. Our testimony is how much love God has given us. The Pharisee and the woman who had seven demons cast out of her. One sits down and says, Jesus, what do you think about Leviticus chapter 10? The other one wets his feet with her tears. And Jesus says, she loves me because she's been forgiven. That's PDA. We need to love on Jesus in front of the world that way. And the only way we can is if we know how much we've been forgiven. If we act like our salvation's the last time we ever had to deal with our sin, wrong. Every day. Every day, we bring it before him. Every day, Lord, forgive me for what I've done and for what I've left undone. And when we receive that forgiveness, we fall in love with him more. And we wipe his feet with our tears. And we serve those around us because we know how undeserving we are. And the world sees the light of God. We will never do what Jesus did for Zacchaeus, but every day we can do what Zacchaeus did for the crowd. Let's stand to our feet this morning. I want you all to close your eyes and I want, to hear, I want you to hear this prayer. Richard Rohr wrote this prayer as a gift to his church on Easter Sunday. I just want you to hear it. There's a few lines in it. One is for you. But listen to this prayer. It's one of the most beautiful prayers I've heard in my life. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming a human being so I do not have to pretend to try and be God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming finite and limited so I do not have to pretend that I am infinite and limitless. I thank you, crucified God, for becoming mortal so I do not have to try to make myself immortal. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming inferior so I do not have to pretend that I am superior to anyone. I thank you for becoming weak 
so I don't have to exhaust myself trying to be strong. I thank you for being willing to be considered imperfect, strange, and odd, so I do not have to be perfect and normal. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to be disapproved of, so I do not have to try so hard to be approved and liked. I thank you for being considered a failure, so I do not have to give my life trying to pretend I'm a success. I thank you for being wrong by the standards of religion and state, so I don't have to try and be right anywhere. I can just be loved. I thank you for being poor in every way, so I don't have to be rich in any way. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for being all of the things humanity despises and fears, so I can accept myself and others in you in whatever state they are in. So, Lord Jesus, we remember the night when you were betrayed, deemed wrong, cast aside and forgotten about. And on that night, you took bread. And when you had given thanks, you broke it. And after you broke it, you said, take this and eat, all of you. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And after supper, you took the chalice and you held it up and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. I pray right now, Heavenly Father, that we would handle the sin of those around us the way you handled our sin at the table, that you would offer yourself for our sins and that we would offer ourselves to others, that we would be generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure, and that in the midst of a crowd, we would see Zacchaeus, that we would see the person who's unseen, that we would see the person who's forgotten about, that we would see the person who's limited and pushed aside and whose limitations are being exploited against them, that we would see those people and we would say, I'm coming to your house today because you saw us and you came to our house every day. To strengthen us for this, we need food, Father God. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, fire and Pentecost of God, I pray that you fall on this normal bread and on this normal juice and that you would make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him so that we can have bread for the journey ahead. And I pray that you would fall on every one of us. We're also broken pieces of bread. And you would make us the body of Christ for the world. I pray that this meal would strengthen us so that we would leave and strengthen others. In your holy and precious name, everybody said, amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.